You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. I don't know if you know the name uh, Aziz Ansari. He's a, an actor and a comedian. He had a leading role in Parks and Recreation, but he's also a stand-up comic. And he's, he's a young adult, and he gets interested in, in dating uh, these days. He goes to nightclubs, and he oftentimes interacts with the members of the audience, asks them to see their cell phones so he can learn about their dating life. And uh, he's gotten interested in, particularly in the loss of dating uh, in our culture today. And he's wondering, you know, what's going on here that doesn't happen a lot? Is it possibly that, that the technology has made it too easy to communicate with mass audiences? Um, and there seems to be some confirmation for this. He, he talks with some women who tell him, yeah, texting is kind of part of the problem for me. Some, one woman in particular gives up her texting service in order to force uh, prospective suitors to actually make a phone call. And uh, uh, that actually proved effective for this young woman. Uh, other women say, yeah, I really, when a guy will call me on the phone, it means an awful lot, but I don't want to talk on the phone. And heaven forbid you have to have a voice conversation. It's the voicemail message that means uh, so much to me. And so... He said, I was talking with a woman in an audience, and, and she said, oh, I got the greatest voicemail message from this guy. And so uh, Aziz asked you know, to, to hear the message. So he says, he writes this, he says, one girl raved about a nice voice message uh, uh, that a guy had recently left her. I kindly requested she play it and heard this gem. Hey, Lydia, it's Sam, just calling to say, what's up? Give me a ring when you get a chance. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> So he says, I, I pleaded to know what was so great about this. She recalled sweetly uh, that, he, well, he remembered my name. He said hi, and he told me to call him back. As he says, never mind the fact that what she described was the content of literally every voicemail in history. Name, hello, please call back. Not really a boatload of charm on display. To fail this test, a guy would have to leave a message that said, no greeting, this is a man, I don't remember you, end communication. <laughs> Recently there was a study that showed 60% of men who are in their 20s and 30s in Japan uh, have no interest, it's hard to believe, have no interest in dating or romance whatsoever. So Aziz flies over there, does some shows in Japan, and he asks his audience, what is this? Well, the first response he gets from the guys in the room was, we're just too busy with work. They've got great careers. Um, but he gets the real answer from an attractively dressed young man named Akira. And uh, Aziz writes, Akira said that he would only ask a woman out if it was clear without any doubt that she was interested. When asked why, he said, well, because she, she could reject me. And every other guy in the room literally groaned in support. It was clear, Aziz writes, that the fear of rejection was huge. And the women agreed. Aziz says, from their perspective, the men's extreme need for assurance and comfort from the women was irritating. Their frustration was palpable. Fear of rejection. Now, it's been a long time since I have dated, uh, thankfully. Uh, <laughs> however, I wonder what I can learn about all of my relationships when I think about my fear 
of rejection. How does the fear of rejection distort my capacity to relate, not just with my wife, but with my colleagues at work, with my broader family, even with my neighbors? John Powell, uh, years ago, asked the question, um, why am I afraid to tell you who I am? And his answer to the question was, I'm afraid to tell you who I am, because if I tell you who I am, you may not like who I am, and that's all I have. So my question to us this morning is, how can we love boldly, as we feel Jesus has called us to do at this time and place, if there is a real risk that the people you and I are called to love might reject us? This is a question in Genesis chapter 16. I'm going to invite you to pull your Bible back up if you happen to lay it to the side and open to page 11 there, Genesis 16. God is preparing a family to become a nation that is so bold that it literally loves all the other families of the earth. But in order to do that, he has to get them past their fear of rejection. And there are two women in this story, two heroines, and in this incident, one of them, named Sarai, and by the way, Erica, great job on the pronunciation. Your Hebrew is flawless. Uh, and, and, uh, and then the other one is Hagar. Sarai discovers that you actually cannot love boldly if there is a real risk of rejection. Hagar actually discovers how it is that you can. And the way that you'll see this, if you read carefully with me, I want you to pay attention to the eyes, to the eyes. In, in 16 verses, uh, eight times words for seeing show up in Hebrew. You can't all see it in translation. They're rendered in English things like looked or saw or seeing or behold or even now. Uh, but the eyes are very much in view. And uh, most importantly, we see uh, eyes in verse 2. These are the eyes that matter to Sarai. Uh, and he, She says to Abram, you see. Now, these are Abram's eyes in verse 2. The most important eyes for Hagar are in verse 13. You'll see this. We'll come to this later. But she names the Lord El Roy. Footnote will tell you God sees. It's God's eyes that are important. And this is where I think we see the narrator drawing our attention as we read this chapter. So I want to look with you uh, at, at these two eyes, sets of eyes. Uh, and uh, then I want to ask why it matters to us today to those of us who wish to love boldly. First, let's look at Sarah's eyes. Sarah sees herself through the eyes of people she wants to love. That's my claim. Now, what does Sarah want? She wants to love, yes, but she wants something more. I think the narrator makes it clear, Sarah wants something that she doesn't get in this story. That explains the hurt and the anger. Now, we have a very sympathetic portrait of Sarai here, I, I believe. Uh, I, I think she's, we're meant to identify with her. The archaeologists uh, who have unearthed documents from the second millennium BC have made it clear that this practice of surrogate childbearing was very common at that time, and the narrator doesn't seem to be offering any disapproval of Sarah. It's not like she's doing something wrong when she makes this strange to us kind of offer to her husband that he could take her uh, handmaid or slave girl as uh, another wife or a, a concubine. Um, she doesn't seem to be exhibiting lack of faith in any particular way. We like Sarai at the beginning of this story. 
I had to check this with a friend of mine, an expert. She's one of a member of our community. She's a 30-year-old young woman. She's actually married. And so, so I said, help me understand what's going on with Sarai. She goes, oh, I totally, I totally identify with Sarai. Because here's this woman, you know, she's in a really tough situation, but she's trying to do something selfless. So she comes to her husband and she says, you know, here, why don't you take Hagar and have a child? And she absolutely expects and wants him to say, no, honey, I, I wouldn't do that. You're, you're my only sweetheart in the world. And, but then Abram doesn't do that. He takes Hagar and sleeps with her. And so she gets furious. She's absolutely outraged at everyone. But in particular, her husband, this is all your fault. And so she says, George, yeah, this is, I, this is like a little window into the female perspective. Now, I don't know if th- that's true, but I do know that this, that if Sarai thought Abram would turn this offer down, then Sarai needs a window into the male perspective, because that is not going to happen. But she has to want more than a child. I say that because she gets the child. Her plan works. Right? If she just wanted a pregnancy and a child for Abram, why would she be upset? And yet in verse 5, she comes to her husband with great criticism. She says, you're responsible for this wrong that's done against me. Actually, the Hebrew word there is even stronger than wrong. It's the word for violence. She has somehow been violated by what's happened here. Why? I think she wants something not from Hagar primarily, but from Abram. What does she want? She wants acceptance. She wants him to see her in a way that makes her know she's valuable to him. His eyes. Now, she's in essence saying, Abram, do you see me? Do you see me in all of my barren brokenness? And with that, do you still accept me? Unfortunately, Abram, uh, there's a little bit of a blank here. Uh, we don't get an answer from Abram at this point. And he, by the way, Abram, up to this point, has never been a notable husband, not quite a role model for us. If you know the story, you know why that's the case. And perhaps that's why Sarah has had this friendship with her handmaiden, uh, Hagar. Maybe Hagar has become a proxy for uh, Abram in her pursuit of acceptance in other people's eyes. And notice this. I have a little bit of a different interpretation of this passage. It's not unique to me, but it runs against the grain of, of a common thought here. Verse 4, notice that it says at the end of the verse, she, that's Hagar, looked with contempt on her mistress. That's Sarai. Now that translation makes it sound like Hagar's kind of mean. Like she's like looking meanly at Sarai with contempt. Well, that's actually just an interpretation that the translators uh, are offering there. The, the, a, a more literal translation of that verse would be, she, that's Hagar, became as nothing in, uh, Sarai uh, became as nothing in the eyes of Hagar. Uh, in, in other words, uh, her own sense of significance was falling as she looked at her friend, Hagar. I would literally translate that, and her mistress became insignificant and in her eyes. The Jewish Publication Society renders this, her mistress was lowered in her esteem. 
The great Old Testament scholar Victor Hamilton writes at this point, Sarai is now a non-child-producing woman, and Hagar is a child-producing woman, and that is what annoys Sarai and not any barbs that Hagar is throwing at her. By comparison, you know what this is like. You look at someone who's got good fortune and you go, oh my gosh, I hate you. You have everything that I so desperately want. So the plan kind of works, but what happens because it works is she can't see herself in the eyes of the people she wants to love as valuable or significant anymore. And this is the deep wound. This is the deep wound for Sarah. She seeks her acceptance from her relationships. She seeks to meet a primary need, acceptance, in a secondary source at a well that can't really satisfy. Those are Sarai's eyes. Now let's move down and just skip ahead. We'll come back to Sarai, but let's look at Hagar's eyes. If Sarai sees herself through the eyes of the people she wants to love, Hagar's very different, at least later. Uh, she sees herself through the eyes of the God who loves her. We might ask ourselves the same question. What does Hagar want? And I think she wants the same thing. She wants acceptance. These are the people in her life. Uh, but she gets rejection, first from Sarai and next from Abram, who sort of says, well, she's your handmaiden, and kind of washes his hands. And so Hagar has to flee. She's an Egyptian. She's a slave. And now she's on the run. She's not just nauseated by the pregnancy. This whole scene has been nauseating. She goes to the wilderness of Shur, which is, by the way, on the way to Egypt. It's like she's trying to get home. She's going home. We think that maybe... Uh, Hagar had been given to Sarai and Abram by the pharaoh of Egypt. She may very well have been Egyptian nobility. And it may have been a great privilege to, um, uh, to, to be honored in this way, to be given. Uh, but uh, things has gone very sour. And for her now to go home, as much as she needs the comfort, may also be a source of shame in her life. So she, here she is, desperate and despondent at this well in the wilderness. Something remarkable, though, happens. By the way, notice how our sympathies have shifted. At first, we were all identifying with Sarai. Now, we're identifying with Hagar because she's been humiliated. This is the word that's, that, that, that is used of what Sarai does to Hagar. It's a, she uh, treats her harshly in our translation. Uh, she oppresses her. It's the word for oppression. It's the word that the Israelites, uh, that, that, that was used of the Egyptians when they oppressed the Israelites in slavery in Egypt. Sarai does this to her Egyptian slave. She oppresses her, humiliates her, and uh, now we sympathize with Hagar. So here we are with her in the wilderness. And then the surprise. And there are three parts to the surprise. The first is that God appears. You notice the angel of the Lord shows up. And this is the first time we see that phrase in Scripture. And it's that, that, that mysterious appearance of a representative of God who seems to be really a more a manifestation of God himself, a messenger of the Lord. And what's so remarkable is that this God appears uh, to her. The second surprise is that he speaks to her. Do you know that this is the only place in contemporary literature, ancient Near Eastern literature, where a deity speaks to a woman? This is a great surprise. That the God of heaven, that the covenant God of Israel would come to an Egyptian and, and to a woman and speak to her. He speaks to her by name, by the way. He speaks to her by name. He addresses her, Hagar. 
God says. And then the third surprise, and I think this is the greatest of them all, he gives her the great promise, not just any promise, the great promise that he had given Abram. And if you were here with us last week, we read chapter 5, and remember, Abram was asked to look up at the stars, and God says, can you count them? There's this multitude of stars. And likewise, we see here that God gives the exact same promise to this Egyptian slave girl on the run. You will have a multi nations will come from you. I'll so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude. Oh, my goodness. What's the Lord saying to Hagar? I know you've been rejected but never by me. I accept you. I accept you. And you do not need relationship with Abram or Sarai to receive the same blessing that I'm giving them. You can have it directly in relationship with me. Turn to me for your acceptance. And what does this mean to uh, Hagar? Well, she understands the implications of this. Notice how she responds. So beautifully. This is another first and only time in the Bible. This is the only time in the Bible where a human being gives God a name. She gives God a name. She's so overwhelmed by what has just happened. She names the Lord. And the name she gives is El Ra'i, which means the Lord sees. God sees. He sees me. He sees me. It's his eyes. She's now seeing herself, the joyful, wonderful discovery of seeing herself through the eyes of a God who is not against her, who will never reject her, but who is absolutely for her. The NIV translates this verse well. It says, She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. I know it's different from our translation, but I like this better. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. This is what we see when we look to Jesus Christ as his followers. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. And when you and I look to Jesus Christ, we look to the eyes of God who gave his Son in rejection to embrace us in his everlasting acceptance. And she believes. Hagar believes. This is a profession of faith, this name that she gives this great God. What a surprise. What a wonder in the midst of her, in the bottom, the bottom of her life. So let me ask the question, why does it matter? Well, I think it matters because the eyes you look into will determine whether you can love boldly or will love recklessly, or whether you will not love at all. I'd like to suggest to you that today in our culture, we don't manage the risk of relationship very well. I ride my bike oftentimes late at night through the U District on my way home, and uh, this is the time of year when doesn't you need to be a weekend to see the parties and the and the students out walking and, and um, clothed in particular ways, and the beer is flowing. And I just, I do worry, I pray, particularly for the young women. Just last week, the Chronicle of Higher Education on the front page reported that one out of four college females, undergraduates, are victim of sexual assault or misconduct. One out of four. I've got a daughter as a freshman at college, okay? It's getting personal. Many of you know the pain of that. And yet, as these women walk across our campus here, do they really know who they are to this great God? You know, Sarai's name will be changed to princess. Princess. If you knew you were princess, would that change what you would do on a Friday night? Or you can go kind of the other end of the lifespan. Here's what you don't want to do. 
If you're young, you don't want to form a, you might like to get married, but you don't want to form a marriage relationship with someone who becomes a source of your acceptance. Because if you do, and I've, I've met men who lose their wives at the end of their life, they're a widower, and it destroys them. I'm not saying they're sad or lonely, I'm saying they're destroyed, because they didn't know of any other place where they could truly find acceptance, except in the eyes of that woman. That's not what you want in a marriage. When we try to meet a primary need at a secondary well, it's always destructive. Think about the damage that Sarai does. But Sarah is low in the eyes of others. What she tries to do is fight the rejection. She tries to fix that problem. And so, so there are either two ways that you'll do that. You'll elevate your eyes over others. We call those haughty eyes. You'll become proud. Or you will trample yourself under the eyes of others. We call that shameful eyes. Comparison like this will never help you or your relationships. I love what Richard Rohr says. This is worth writing down. Pain that is not transformed is transferred. Pain that is not transformed is transferred. Sarah does damage to her relationship. She starts to accuse her husband. She humiliates her handmaiden. On the other hand, when we see what happens to Hagar in this divine encounter, it's wonderful. She becomes a person of restoration and healing. Hagar faces great risk, but do you notice what happens in verse 9? She's told by the Lord to do what only the Lord ought to, ought to tell you, and that's to go back into a toxic relationship. The Lord says, I want you to go back. I want you to humble yourself uh, before th- these two. Really, they were humiliating me. You want me to humble myself? That sounds very dangerous. Well, that, there's risk associated with that for Sarah. But she will go back. She can do it now because she has a place of humility where she knows herself just as she truly is wonderfully in the eyes of the Lord. She is immune now to humiliation because she is secured in the acceptance of her God. She can love, and this is the answer to our initial question, she can love even though there is a real risk of rejection. And to echo Richard Rohr looking at Hagar, I would say to you this morning that Pain, her pain is transformed, but now what she will transfer is not pain, but grace. She goes back with grace. So, friends, what are you looking for in a relationship? Would you think with me about your relationships this week? What are you looking for in them? It matters uh, in romance. Uh, Aziz Ansari claims that if our prospects in dating don't look good, maybe it's because we're looking for the wrong thing. We're looking for acceptance, and therefore we can't tolerate the risk. Gosh, if I call you, you might not call me back. If I text you, you might ignore me. If I friend you, you might unfriend me. I don't expect me to be the one who makes the first call. Don't expect me to be the one who commits more. In dating, you know, the, the rule of the jungle is the person who's the least interested has the most power in the relationship, and that's the way we date these days. By the way, we have the same challenge in marriage, those of you who are married. (laughs) When I showed up my first day of work at the last church I served, which is down in Los Angeles, I I kid you not, I walked in the front door, and the receptionists were there. She said, welcome to this church. She said, you know, the first pastor married me to my first husband. The second pastor married me to my second husband. (laughs) You might be the guy that marries me to the next man in my life. (laughs) I said, oh, really? So you're still looking? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, I said, okay, but, you know, let's be sure before we do that, we have a real good talk with one another. Uh, 
Esther Perel is a psychotherapist, and she's had the occasion to, to speak with hundreds of married couples over the years. And in a TED Talk, she said this, marriage used to be an economic institution in which you were given a partnership for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. But now we want our partner to still give us all these things. But in addition, I want you to be my best friend and trusted confidant and my passionate lover to boot. And we live twice as long. So we come to one person and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, but give me transcendence and mystery and awe all in one. Give me comfort, but give me edge. Give me novelty, give me familiarity. Give me predictability, give me surprise. Is this possible? Is this really what marriage is all about? It matters not only in a romance, but where you and I find what we are looking for in a relationship matters in mission. And our mission here is to share hope in Jesus Christ. Both of these are, 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 are hoping for acceptance, but they're using the word hope very differently. For Sarah, she's hoping for acceptance in the sense that she's wishing for acceptance. For her, she's looking for romantic prospects through whom she could see herself with value. Hagar doesn't think of hope as a wish. She thinks of hope in the way that the Bible always uses the word hope, which is confident expectation. She's living with a promise. Remember I told you our definition of hope, H-O-P-E. Heaven opened, and it does open for Hagar. Promise engaged, and she does engage that promise as she goes back to be an agent of reconciliation. By the way, this also ties into what we were talking about last week, do, be, be to do. Uh, in a relational context, this is what be to do looks like. Uh, Hagar is moving from do to be, where I have to do X in order to be accepted. She's moving to be to do, where I am accepted. I can be completely accepted by God, and now I can do love, radical love, gracious love in spite of the risk. I'm living with a God who unconditionally, unreservedly, irrevocably accepts me. And he accepts you, and he loves you, and he delights in you. That relationship with Jesus Christ that Ray was leading us to pray for is the only place, the only well, where we can find the kind of acceptance that allows us to tolerate risk and love people boldly. How do we make this shift? Just very quickly, there are four practices that uh, we can learn from Hagar. She hears, she sees, she believes, and she leaves. She hears God's word, and we need to do the same to know the truth. She sees herself differently through God's eyes, and we need to do the same. He's our true mirror. She believes his promise. El Roy, this is the God who sees me and accepts me completely. And then four, she leaves. She leaves the wilderness, and she goes back to relationship. I was talking with a wife recently. She was telling me a story about a, her, her and her husband going back into their marriage with hope in Jesus and what that looked like for them. They went to a marriage conference, and after a time of worship, they were asked by the facilitator to look into each other's eyes and to keep looking. And uh, this woman said it was very uncomfortable. At first, it was terrifying. But then it became wonderful when they realized the grace that was available to them in Jesus Christ. They were seeing one another for the first time, and the tears began to come. It reminded me of a song, and I'll close with this called Broken Together, written by a group called Casting Crowns. What do you think about when you look at me? I know we're not the fairy tale you dreamed we'd be. You wore the veil, you walked the aisle, you took my hand. It's going to take much more than promises this time. Only God can change our minds. Maybe you and I were never meant to be complete. 
could we just be broken together? If you can bring your shatters, dreams, and I'll bring mine, could healing still be spoken and save us? The only way will last forever is broken together. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the freedom of being completely loved. We pray for one another because we know that all of us are in strained relationships, some deeply troubling. And we pray that you'll give each one of us the wisdom we need in order to safely re-engage in those relationships in the way that Hagar re-engages. Perhaps it's a word of forgiveness. Perhaps it's um, giving that relationship a second try. Maybe it's just praying for that person. But whatever it is, Lord, would you give us the boldness? Because we have this great hope, would you help us? to love boldly. Christ's name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.